Good evening. Maybe a little abnormal to see someone walking up in a skirt, but I'll explain here in just a minute. It's good to be here with you this evening. Um, as was mentioned, um, talking about Bangladesh, an outreach of Western Fellowship. Um, <clears throat> maybe before we get too far, I'll try to explain this piece of clothing to you. Um, it's called a lungi, and it is a very common piece of clothing for the men over there. Um, it's something that they can afford. Um, jeans are not very popular there, so it's a very comfortable piece of clothing for them, and that's what they normally wear. Um, being teachers over there, it's, um, it's not very dignified to go teach school in a lungi, so we wore dress-up clothes like we do here. Okay, so I was over in Bangladesh for one time of teaching um, English. So I've been there once. I don't feel like I have a lot of experience like some people sitting here have. But um, I'll try to explain to the, um, from my experience and only from one school. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but it got started back in, I think it was 2009, 2010, after a cyclone hit Bangladesh. Um, the education department got shut down, and the head uh, man, I guess, in charge of education was now in charge of helping to clean up. And one of the last days that Cam was there, he came to one of Cam's contacts and said, we need your youth to come over and teach our children English. So um, the program got started on an invitational basis. <clears throat> so every year um, in January through March, um, we are over there teaching English. Um, there's, there were three teams last year that went over with about six people per team. Um, so that's who goes over. Um, and there are different villages that we go to. There was three. Um, <clears throat> I was in the northeastern part of Bangladesh. Um, it's a rather poor area. Um, but we are there to show them God's love, show them God's compassion. Um, there's no other way to get into the country as um, missionaries. Um, it's very restricted. So this is kind of a... I guess, a cover to get in. So what do we actually do? We go into the public schools um, and we have a class of 15 students. Um, we try to cap it at 15 because it just gets too many. Um, start losing control of the students. Um, so we try to cap it at 15 and every day we go there and we try to teach them spoken English. Um, where I was at, um, it was amazing how much the children already knew of um, grammar, grammar English. Um, they actually teach it in the school, but they can't, they don't speak it. <clears throat> and so they're very, uh, we try to build confidence in the, in the children and helping them learn how to speak English. <clears throat> so we were there. Um, we had six teachers, so we were teaching classes six through ten. And because we had five five grades and six teachers, we split a class. So one class had 30 students, but we split it because of two teachers. Each day we went there, um, there's no curriculum um, that's printed, published for us. So each night you have to make your own um, lessons for the next day. So it gets to be a lot of work. Um, so 
with that, um, you tried to um, uh, instigate uh, conversations with the, with the children to get them speaking. Um, and you can do that various ways. You can do it through games. Uh, there's just a lot of things we do to try to get them to speak. I'm glad that I had the experience to go over. Um, I would like to go again because there's a lot of things I do different. <clears throat> um, I forgot one time what, well, one time I was trying to study for the next day and I, I just bottomed out. I couldn't think, I couldn't come up with any lesson and I was feeling very discouraged. And I actually was going to school the next morning without a lesson prepared, <clears throat> which is a mistake. But on the way to school, we had an hour walk. Um, and I was talking to one of the other team members, and he gently reminded me that we're here to show them God's love and show them compassion. And it's not about flying through any... It's not, there's, we're not trying to get through any course, so there's no need for speed. Um, if it takes you two days to teach a lesson, that's great. <clears throat> so that, that helped me, and I got to school and I tried to be as cheerful as I can, as I could. Um, and we got through the day all right, actually. But it is very important to remember that we're there. We're, trying to, uh, we're not trying to teach them an uh, English course. We, we want to uh, spend time with them, make sure that what we're trying to teach, they, they actually get. Um, So it was a good experience for me. Um, there's various aspects of um, teaching in the classroom. <clears throat> Some of the biggest challenges for me in the classroom was behavioral issues. Um, one class had three boys and 12 girls, and it's very hard to control them sometimes. Um, so what do you do when they start acting up? Can't control them? Well, uh, one thing is their, their culture is based on an honor-shame principle. Um, so if you do something that is, is shaming to your family or to your community, your village, um, that is something that affects them for a long time. Um, so you kind of have to use that to, uh, to control them. So there's various things you can do. There's other teachers here that I'm sure have different um, tactics than what I used, but... Um, Sending them away from, out of the class for the rest of the time, for the rest of the rest of the day, um, that is one thing that I use some because um, it, it went on their record that they were absent, and if they had enough absence, they didn't get a certificate at the end of the t uh, three months we were there. So behavioral issues was one thing that uh, I struggled with a little bit, knowing how to work with them. But when time came to leave. Um, it was it was good for both for me and them. Um, I think we both had a good time um, overall, and uh, I think I miss them. I don't know what they remember about me. I hope it's things that uh, that they will remember for a long time that will help them point them to truth. <clears throat> so it's a lot of work, like I mentioned before. Um, it's a good experience. If anyone gets to uh, go on a um, English team I, it's a good experience you won't regret it you learn a lot of things because you're in a different culture um, so it's a lot of eye openers I don't understand their culture completely I've only been there once so there's a lot of learning I still have to do and uh, again I don't feel like it's very balanced because I was only at one school and only there for one time so 
if you know anyone that's been there more than one time, um, I'm sure they have more stories and more experiences. <clears throat> that's all I have. Um, hope you learned a little bit of something about what, what actually happens in a bungalow classroom. Um, and anyone that may be considering going, um, I wish you the best. Good evening. I was asked to talk about CAST, so I will try to give you a little overview of our CAST project this year. Um, first of all, I thought probably most of you know what CAST stands for. It's the, the uh, Conservative Anabaptist Service Program, and it's, an, um, it's under CAM, but CAM does not necessarily provide oversight on all the projects, so different constituents, con um, fellowships or whatever uh, provide oversight. So this year um, our CAST project was on Ocracoke Island, North Carolina and it was pretty much the month of April. We started, we got there March 27th and left the 24th of April. Uh, so first of all I'll go over our staff and the or the guys that were there. So Edwin and June Bontrager were, was the program director. Paul and Rhonda Bear was the project coordinator. And David and Cindy Schroeder, um, they were a couple from Pantego, North Carolina. Dave was crew leader and Cindy was head cook. And then we had three girls there for domestic help, Christy Schwarzentruber, Susan Ruckert, and Frida Hauser. And then there were t 10 of us guys, um, two from Wisconsin, Brandon Martin and Mark Corver, Reuben Hauser from Ohio, Alan Krupp from Bitterroot Valley, Brent Stolzfus from Pine Grove, Jaron Bear from Legrand, Dan Krupp, and Nelson Krupp from Harrisburg, and Justin Bechtel and myself from Porter. So the reason we went um, the island of Ocracoke is a very low island. There's very little high high areas on it. And a couple years ago, there was a hurricane that came through. And the hurricane itself did not actually do a lot of damage to the island. But because of the way the storm moved through, it pushed a lot of water out to sea and actually made a low spot. And then the wind moved, moved and the water came rushing back in and caused a a big wave to rush across the island. So there were um, areas that had five or six feet of water on them. It varied some, but... <clears throat> and that included nearly every building, except the ones that were already built on stilts that were above, above the water. So we were doing rebuilding, building new houses, and remodeling some structures that were still there. Um, a local pastor named Ivy Belch was the man who coordinated most of our work. He uh, was interesting, had a good sense of humor, and we really enjoyed interacting with him. And we ended up doing some work in his church as well. 
So uh, we did, we worked on around eight different projects, um, a variety of work, both exterior and interior. Um, there was a, a beachy fella there on the island that did all the, or most anyways, of the electrical and plumbing work. So one of, one of our uh, crew helped him most of the time. He wasn't there all the time, but... And then, so the first week we were on a project, we built, so, so all the new houses are built on pilings. It varies, but from 6 to 10 or 12 feet off the ground. So every house has to have a deck or at least stairs and landings. So we did a fair bit of that, actually. Um, first week we built some stairs and a landing and insulated and sheetrocked a house, modified and installed four door, pine, solid pine doors and some other odds and ends. Uh, the second week we did some more doors, painted and tr installed trim, uh, built two fairly large decks and stairs for them and textured drywall. And the third and fourth week were some of the same stuff um, included doing flooring, um, some windows. We did a little siding and caulking. <clears throat> um, so our daily schedule, each day Edwin would uh, come to our dorm rooms and poke his head in the door and read a verse to us at 6 o'clock. So that was our wake-up call. Then at 6.40, we were supposed to be out in the main uh, dining area to pack our lunches. Then at 7, we had devotions, and 7.30 was breakfast. At 8, we headed off for the job. Um, then we had three breaks, a short break in the morning, then lunch break, and then a break in the afternoon. 5 o'clock was quitting time. 6 o'clock was supper. 7.30, we had our evening activity, and then 9 o'clock was snack and fellowship, and 10.30, all lights out. Um, for our evening activities, Monday evening we had a discipleship class. Tuesday evening we had fellowship. We uh, guess most, well, not all the time, but we played softball one time. We went to the beach, or twice, I guess, actually. Um, one evening a local man came in and talked about history, Ocracoke history. And then Wednesday evening was discipleship class again. Thursday evening we sang. And Friday evening was fellowship again. Um, Saturdays we did, we went on several field trips. So the first, I guess the first one we stayed there on the island did some job site maintenance and Oh, explored the village a little bit. Um, it's a it's a fairly small village, but they get a lot of tourism in the summertime, so it's kind of geared that way. But definitely an interesting village. The second Saturday, we went north to another island called the Hatteras Island and visited um, the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum. Um, that was really interesting. That area of the Atlantic coast is known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic because a lot of ships have 
been lost there due to a variety of reasons. Um, one of the bigger ones is it's a very, um, there's a lot of shallow water, so it's easy for ships to run aground, and it's also known for its violent storms. <clears throat> we also visited the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Um, this lighthouse is the tallest lighthouse in the U.S., and it's also one of the only, or I'm not sure if it's the only one, but almost the only one that has been moved. They actually moved the lighthouse because due to shifting sand, the water was getting close and they were afraid that the lighthouse would um, collapse. The third Saturday, we were taken to another little island um, by a local man. And this island, there's nobody living on the island, but there's an, a ghost town on it. So we explored several buildings and walked around and enjoyed our boat ride. Um, and then just go over a couple of highlights that will go beyond what I've already said. Um, so this island has no bridges to it. You ride ferry to it. You ride ferry away from it. So you have to stay on schedule. But ferry rides are enjoyable, interesting. Um, we had a very great team. I think we all agree on that. The staff was good. We had great um, guys enjoyed making new friends. Um, the girls cooked a lot of good food. We had plenty of that. Um, enjoyed just the the working together to um, accomplish projects. For our discipleship class, we uh, went through the book Charting a Course in Your Youth by Gary Miller. So that was... Um, Enjoyable, interesting, uh, good for us to study. A couple of questions that we that um, stood out to me through that one is, can God tell that he owns everything that I have? Another is, am I a student of the mind of my master? And spike ball, volleyball, we got to swim in the ocean a couple times. Um, yeah, we're close to the beach, so that was interesting. Um, something interesting about the village itself, it's small and they allow go-karts, go not go-karts, golf carts. Um, so you see a lot of them around. They're just, there's a 20 mile per hour speed limit village-wide, so um, yeah, you see a lot of go-karts and that was interesting. Um, maybe one other thing I'll mention, the East, we, so we were there on the island Easter Sunday and we were invited to go to a sunrise service by this Pastor Ivy. And so that was on the beach and that was in, an interesting experience. There was uh, singing, there was a lady that danced, there was, we actually sang a couple songs, but it was just an interesting service, um, kind of different. <clears throat> so overall, I had a very enjoyable experience and um, enjoyed the opportunity to reach out to people that had lost their homes that were in need. And I would definitely recommend to you young men that you go to CASP and to the girls too if you have opportunity. <clears throat>
Good evening. I've been asked to give a report on the project of feeding Venezuelan migrantes or those who are leaving Venezuela to seek a better life somewhere else. I'll read a verse from Matthew 5. And this is the words of Christ Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And we certainly don't need to travel outside of our home communities to do that. But I feel the project was an opportunity uh, for people from our churches to put that into practice. So the the project was located in the country of Colombia, near the eastern border, uh, the border shared with Venezuela. The the town name is Villa Villa del Rosario, but it was near a large city called Cucuta, which is where we flew into, a city of approximately 1.3 million. The project was begun, to my understanding, by a church near the capital of Colombia. The town name is Tabio. And that that church was, I would say, begun or supported by the Pikes Peak Church in, near Pueblo, Colorado. And that the location of the project was quite some distance from the actual church that was sponsoring it. I believe it would have been over 12 hours in a, in a passenger car, longer by bus. And I understand, my understanding of this project is that it was, it was funded by Christian Aid Ministries but it was administered by a three-man committee, I think, from from the church in Tabio. So a few things regarding the country of Venezuela. It had been a relatively wealthy country, I believe because of petroleum, And at one time, its population was over 31 million. In land area, it would be approximately 3.6 times larger than our state of Oregon. I don't know all the I don't know all the factors that went into the the situation, but at some point there was a serious economic downturn, and government corruption, a lack of supplies, and extreme inflation um, drove many people to choose to leave the country. Perhaps to give us an idea of the kind of inflation they were dealing with, I don't know if this example is the 
is the extent of how bad it was, but imagine you having $5,000 in your wallet. And over time, it becomes worth 500 and then 50 and then 5 um, It's hard to imagine. But money was not worth much. In fact, as an interesting it was interesting, but perhaps gives you an idea. There were people who had businesses of creating crafts out of the folded paper money to sell the tourists and others. Wallets, purses, various items that were built beautifully crafted out of folded paper currency. They could make more doing that than the money itself was worth. That area of the world has a, has a lot of, has interesting history that we don't know a lot about. For those of you who know history, I believe that the South American independence hero, Simon Bolivar, was born in Venezuela, and their unit of money is called the Bolivar. This particular project was begun in the fall of 2018 and referred to as a soup kitchen. And I would say that that, that phase of the project lasted until sometime in the spring of 2020 when the complications from COVID um, rendered travel in and out of the country impossible or difficult. And thus, well, there's a number of aspects, but it was difficult to get volunteers into the country, of course. The project was housed, I believe, or we worked from a hotel complex. We stayed in a in cabins, and I, I'm assuming that the property, the the area that that we served people from was was part of that property. And. I was there in, the, in May of 2019, and I believe that there were others from Western Fellowship who served in that project at various times. So the structure of the project, well, I might say now that, that I'm sharing largely from my perspective and from my time there. and there were different phases to the project. But while I was there, there was an administrator. There was a pastor who also had spiritual oversight for the project. And that pastor also preached to the, I'll call them refugees, um, prior to them receiving food. There were house parents, there, were, there was a head cook, and then the other volunteers, the, the more temporary volunteers, 
I, I would say there was roughly seven to seven to ten men and seven to ten ladies for various time commitments, mostly from a week or two to a month, some longer. Backing up a little bit to the refugees, the the border between the two countries at that time was fairly porous. There was an official bridge crossing that was guarded, but then from the bridge you could see the unofficial crossings where goods and people would move across seemingly at will. I believe that there were gangs or groups who would charge a fee to permit people to do that, but the government, it appeared, was looking the other way largely. And many of these refugees, they were moving to other parts of Colombia or to Ecuador, Peru. At this point, I don't know for sure if they were moving beyond that. I wouldn't be surprised if some ended up in Central America or beyond, but Colombia is the point in South America that connects to Central America, so it makes a natural pathway if they want to head north. And many of these were walking. I don't have statistics for distances and time that it would take, but it would be a significant trek. And both the capital city of Bogota and Cucuta, near where we were, would be in the Andes Mountain region, Andes Mountains region. So at the soup kitchen, meals were served Monday through Friday, a morning, morning meal and an afternoon meal. And the numbers, how many people how many plates were being served depended on when you were there. During the time I was there, typically 1,000 to 1,600 plates a day. Sometimes that was, I don't recall anymore if people could come back in the second time in one day. I think there were some limitations to how many times they could come in a week. And at some point, there were steps taken to try to limit the people, to try to keep the people served to those who truly needed it. It's, a, it's always a problem, I'm sure, when you're feeding people. But there were those who I think would have taken advantage of the situation. So I'll try to give a brief explanation of how the system worked. The food is prepared. Um, the refugees would line up outside the, the compound and then they were permitted in and accumulated in groups of 30 to 50. And meticulous record was kept of their ID numbers so there was some control, at least at that point, of who was coming in, how often they were there. Once a group had accumulated, they were moved to an area where they received a small sermon, a short sermon. 
And then if they so chose, there's opportunity to pray with the pastor or seek counsel. And it was not uncommon for people to do that. From there, they would move to the food line. They would stand in line, move through the line, turn in their tickets that they received at the gate and receive the appropriate number of plates for their party. The soup kitchen provided a place for people to come, rest in the shade, get water, use restrooms. There were maps and a literature stand and a small amount of unofficial medical help if someone had need. The kitchen used reusable plates and cups. There was a lot of dishwashing. Volunteers would fill the plates, pass the, hand the plates to the people, and fill water jug, fill water pitchers, clean up tables after people left, uh, wash the dishes. There's a lot of work and. For I found it physically demanding at times. A lot attention was paid to disease prevention, and we've used a lot of bleach in our cleanup. One thing that was unique in our time there was in the same hotel complex. There were a number of Venezuelan defected military and police personnel that had chosen to leave their responsibilities and leave the country. And there was both a complication and an opportunity. Uh, we were able to visit with them a fair amount, yet it made it more complicated for those responsible for the safety and oversight of the, the volunteers. But it was an opportunity. I feel like the in addition to the, the soup kitchen part of it, I, it, my impression is that the, the administrators that had a vision for getting literature into Venezuela, and so periodically there would be people from inside the country, Venezuela, that would come and take literature back in with them. As far as the, the, just the security of the situation in Colombia there, I, it felt fairly secure. There were, there, I, I believe that, there, that drug trafficking and gangs were a problem. And there was some, there was an incident or two of violence near the border, which was a few kilometers away. But, I find it intriguing. You can still see in Voice of Martyrs, they still flag Colombia as a place where people suffer. 
I don't think it was much that way right where we were, but I'm sure that depending where you go, the, that is a reality. But based on what we saw, it wasn't a problem to us. I believe that after the the main project shut down, they still continued to provide some level of food for hungry people. I think they still continued to try to keep something going, if it was literature. Um, currently, there's there's some level of literature work being done in Venezuela. I believe they had a pastor's conference where they provided some teaching, some interaction with pastors from Venezuela. I believe they're working on a church plant in that town. Um, and also establishing a Mount Zion literature bookstore in, in a deli in that town. A few highlights for me were, were, were the interaction with the Venezuelans. They would ask questions of the volunteers, and there was some language barrier, but to try to explain in halting Spanish or with some English why we do some of the things we do or to, the, or to, get, to give my testimony or explain what Jesus has done in my life to try to communicate with them. That, that was a highlight and also the opportunity to to address some physical, some med- some minor medical needs, and I wanted to I want to say that I I just have a general impression of the project there. It it seems like they have done a really good job of of taking advantage or of moving into an opportunity and just humbly, wisely adapting that it really evolved, I believe, from what it be, from its beginnings. And it just feels like they're, they're trying to do something and they're, they didn't let the obstacles deter them, but adapted to meet the challenges. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. I w- it was, if it would begin again, I would re- it's an experience I would recommend.